Welcome to Bible Over Brews, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice for Verka, and I've got Mike. Howdy. I've got Gumby. Hey, what's up? I've got Keith. Yay, beer! <laughs> and I've got Zachariah. Yo. <laughs> Tonight we're going to be talking about conspiracy theory. And what we're going to be hitting on is a couple of the secret societies. Hmm. And <laughs> and this is a brulette episode. We are hitting several light beers to find out who out of these contenders has the best. We have in one corner Corona Light, in another Yinling Flight, Michelob Ultra versus his twin brother Michelob Ultra Pure Gold Organic. This is a fight for the ages. Literally, the ages. So if you're like over the age of 40, these are the ones you want to know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm offended. What else is new? (laughs) All right. Mike, if you want to uh, roll the dice and pour us our first beer. All right. Here we go. We don't know which one's which. Number two. All right. So whatever. Definitely picks it up. It's hovering over my glass. He pours it. It looks clear. Light. Pilsnery. <laughs> oh yeah, that looks. Uh, Let's see. Uh, got a feeling. He's got a feeling. <laughs> All right, from the t- from oh. the smell. Feeling's gone. I know what it is. The feeling. You know exactly <laughs> what it is. Hmm. So, right off the get go, it does have a, a very. Slight overtone, like it, like a flowery overtone, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but feeling's gone. It has a vi- and a little bit. I sense a little bit of not flavor honey, but you know that that first, you know that first fragrance you get when you open a honey jar. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's got that to it, like that, like that flowery smell. Maybe you know the bees hovered too long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. It's but got yeah, a little bit, I, got I, a little bit of pollen. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely get the yeah. It's got a sweet smell. Flavor's good. I like the flavor. All right, that's it's it's not overbearing. It's light. Yeah, it's, super quenching. Yeah, almost like sugar free Sprite or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm sneaking away with my high school buddies trying this beer out. <laughs> that's what it tastes like to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very very light. This is definitely a summer beer. Hands down, a summer beer. This is I am mowing my lawn right now, kind of beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's not. it's not bad. It's not great. It's it's one of those again. I would drink it on a hot day. Yep. It's it's not one of those I would go to if I'm like I need a beer, right? But right. but it's good. It's quenching. Would you stock it's quenching? It? <sighs> I would stock it for summer housework. Outside, okay. yeah. Again. Would you would you <laughs> yeah. stock this? I would not stock this. Okay. I would say I've had. I think now this is blind taste test, so it's right. tough. This might be all placebo effect for me. <laughs> um, I would say I've had ultralight beers with more robustness, and okay. this one does not have that. It does not. So it you guys not. don't know if you would stock this until you find out what it is, right? Uh, or how much yard work your wife's giving you, <laughs> <laughs> right? Either one. Yeah, but uh, let's see. I think I'm gonna go. Let me see. I think I'm gonna go with uh, Yinling Flight. 
What do you think? What are our choices? It would be Coronalite, Yinling Flight, Michelob Ultra Pure Gold, or Michelob Ultra. Going the Michelob before the last one. So, Pure Gold? Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going Pure Gold. So I'm going to do this is two, and you're going to do this one is two. I'm going to be the odd one here and just, I would go Corona. It does right. have a little bit of like a, a lemony, honey. All right. Mike's that was going. my first gut. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was going to say it's not the Corona because that's the only <laughs> thing in my bag. It did not sound like that at all. <laughs> What's in the bag? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's dive into a little bit of conspiracy. So to prep for this, I did the great course's Real History of Secret Societies. And – What's that? That a boy. <laughs> right. It's uh, for anybody who doesn't know, the great courses are done by actual college level professors. They are considered full college courses. Hmm. You do a half hour a day for 30 straight days. So um, you do dive deep into them. And to this guy's credit, he was very forgiving. So um, he did not, he was not one of those conspiracy theorists who's like, oh my lord, everybody's in skull and bones. <laughs> <laughs> but he was um he did dive as deep as he could into the historical uh contextual value of what they were, what they were not, and potentially what they could be. So he did um he did walk that fine line between all three of those. So I have to give the guy a big kudos. Uh I forget the professor's name. I do have the links and the slides, so if you subscribe you'll be able to get the uh, the links in the slideshow. So That's pretty cool. Yeah. College level conspiracy theory. I'm telling you. <laughs> That's So you, you finish it then you're not technically a conspiracy theorist then are you? <laughs> well, no, you, you I don't know. the full academic. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's the thing. When we come to secret societies, here's the definition he used. Secret societies generally aren't secret. Most don't hide their existence. Sometimes, in fact, they advertise it. What's secret about most secret societies is what goes on inside. Everything from rituals and passwords to what the members really believe in, as well as their individual identities. The best-known secret society, the Millionaire Strong Freemasons, prefer to think of themselves as a society with secrets. <laughs> so if you go by his definition, you know, it's it's not so it's not so so conspiracy theory as it is overt theory. <laughs> Just intentionally mysterious. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well put. <laughs> Boarding up the windows. <laughs> It sounds actually boring because it sounds like a bunch of like people who are like they want you to know that they're having conversations that you're not involved in. <laughs> so historically, there is value to that, though, because if you do want the best people on your team, they have to know you exist. So and we will be touching on some of that. Good point. Yeah, mm. we will be touching on some of that as we move forward, because some of it gets really, really interesting. You see, right at the very so, beginning, though, you're clipping all of the feet of people who say that, you know, that there are conspiracies. Okay. You know, or there are no conspiracies or, you know, someone who would just accuse someone of being a conspiracy theorist. Right. 
you know, that, that kind of. Well, are you though? Because think about it. If you are, even if you, it doesn't matter what kind of conspiracy theorist you are, if you're a conspiracy theorist, that means you're probably doing most of your research online, which means most of it is already public information. It's just how you define it that's different. Yeah, exactly. So we're not really clipping people's feet or feathers or wings. We're just simply exploring what we can of it, mm-hmm. you know. And again, the teacher of this course was actually very good because, again, he yeah, said yeah. he could only teach what he can find of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said a lot of a lot of secret society uh, research is just simply digging up what there is because a large portion of it we'll never find. Yeah. So. Um, and, and I, I have other resources I use for this as well. That was just one of the main ones. So, um, ironically, I did, I was going to also use, uh, Colonel William Cooper in this one. Um, an old favorite of mine. The trouble is, is when it came to secret societies, um, his research by and large did not pass my new, my new sets of standards. (gasps) You have a new litmus test. I do. I do. So other things he covers does a very good job. But when it comes to secret societies, he tells you what he read about in theory when he was a uh, a naval briefer because he had uh, access to a lot of documents that were a very high level government. Unfortunately, he never provides a validation or a document or even a uh, a reference number to any of uh, his theories when it comes to secret societies. So because of that, it didn't pass my test, and I couldn't use his information. Now, other things I will use as reference work for him because he does provide documentation reference work. But when it comes to secret societies, too much of it was simply, this is what I read, and he never had a validation. So I couldn't use that. Other things, again, I will. Um, so the first one we're going to touch on is the... Let let it be known that all the guys sitting around drinking light beer for fun have standards. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> don't say we don't. <laughs> <laughs> and f- we have goals. <laughs> <laughs> the first one we're going to touch on is one that uh, actually Keith and I are very familiar with. Is the Knights of Columbus. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Why are you guys familiar with this? I did not see that You need to confess? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So Keith and I actually... (laughs) (laughs) Keith and I actually are Knights of Columbus. So... Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid now I have to kill you. No. (laughs) (laughs) So so just to hit a quick history of it, the Knights of Columbus was founded by an Irish-American Catholic priest the Venerable Father Michael J. McGivney, in New Haven, Connecticut. He gathered a group of men from St. Mary's Parish for an organizational meeting on October 2nd, 1881, and the order was incorporated under the laws of the U.S. state of Connecticut on March 29th, 1882. Though the first councils were all in that state, the order spread throughout New England and the United States in subsequent years. The primary motivation for the order was to be a mutual benefit society. As a parish priest in an immigrant community, McGivney saw what could happen to a family when the breadwinner died and wanted to provide insurance to care for the widows and orphans 
left behind. He himself had to temporarily leave his seminary studies to care for his family when his father died. In the late 19th century, Catholics were regularly excluded from labor unions and other other organizations that provided social services. In addition, Catholics were either barred from many of the popular fraternal organizations or, as in the case of Freemasonry, forbidden from joining by the Catholic Church itself. We'll touch on that again later. McGivney wished to provide them an alternative. He also believed that Catholicism and fraternalism were not incompatible and wished to found a society that would encourage men to be proud of their American Catholic heritage. McGivney traveled to Boston to examine the Massachusetts Catholic Order of Foresters and to Brooklyn to learn about the recently established Catholic Benevolent League, both of which offered insurance benefits. He found the latter to be lacking the excitement he thought was needed if his organization was to compete with the secret societies of the day. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) He expressed an interest in establishing a New Haven Court of the Foresters, but the charter of the Massachusetts Foresters prevented them from operating outside their commonwealth. The Committee of St. Mary's Parishioners parishioners McGivney had assembled then decided to form a club that was entirely original. McGivney had originally conceived of the name Sons of Columbus, but James T. Mullen, who would suggest the first Supreme Knight, successfully suggested that Knights of Columbus would better capture the ritualistic nature of the new organization. The order was founded 10 years before the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the New World and at a time of renewed interest in him. Columbus was a hero to many American Catholics, and the naming him as patron was partly an attempt to bridge the division between the Irish Catholic founders of the order and Catholic immigrants of other nationalities living in Connecticut. So that's a brief history of what took place with them. Now, just to give you kind of an idea, even here in uh, in Ohio, we had a, a huge Irish <laughs> immigration that came here. I point at Mike because Mike's yeah. Irish. I'm only 16% Irish, but I got 100% Irish last name. So. There you go. <laughs> um, so during his time, it was one in two Catholics that were dying in labor. Hmm. So literally 50% of all Irish Catholic laborers was dying. And that left a, a lot of widows and uh, and children behind. So... He had a uh, a whole congregation that was predominantly women and children because of how many men were dying in the labor. You know, they were all with skyscrapers and uh, a lot of dangerous, different labor-intensive uh, careers. Mm. And so he did this to try to take care of them, and the insurance that came about helped take care of the widows and the orphans. So that really is what takes place when it comes to the Knights of Columbus. I can't tell you too much more because then I would have to kill you. It, it, it's it's almost like a parody of the Freemasons because it's like Freemasons, but Catholics are allowed in, and the secret stuff actually isn't that interesting, and they take care of widows. So there you go. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, generally speaking, in terms of secret societies and conspiracy conspiracies, uh, I I I didn't even know that they would be considered one. I just. They, they fell in line with them. They were, okay. not only were they in this course, but when you pull up secret societies, they almost always <clears throat> include them. 
Interesting. There, there is stuff you're supposed to like keep secret, like the actual ceremonials. Now, frankly, I mean, in recent days, like you don't even have to be a member to sit in a meeting, <laughs> which would have the so-called secret ceremonials. Yeah. If you're a Catholic man interested in being the Knights of Columbus, you can be invited to a meeting and walk right in and you know see everything. Um, <laughs> can you? I join, mean, most of what they do not be Catholic. Uh, no, you have to be what they call a practical Catholic, which mm. means you like aren't openly bad at being Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Secret Ouch. bad Catholic, sure, go ahead. <laughs> at least we admit it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I say that now, roll that dice. Because now we're going to move to the next one. And while you do that... Welcome good times roll number five. Number, we don't have number five. <laughs> so keep rolling. All right. Number four. four there we, right. go. we have a four. So to preface what we're moving into, it's going to be the Bavarian Illuminati. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> when people reference Illuminati, they're actually referencing what was the Bavarian Illuminati. So that's where it actually comes from. So while he pours that, uh, let's see. Soon two books appeared, aligning that the French Revolution was a Masonic conspiracy. But behind this, supposedly, lurked a more insidious secret society, the Bavarian Illuminati. The first book, Memoirs, illustrating the history of Jacobianism, was written by refugee French priest Augustin Barul, who argued that the French Revolution was the end result of subterranean warfare, waged by secret societies to destroy the church and the monarchy. Scottish scientist John Robeson produced the second work, Proofs of a Conspiracy, which alleged that the Illuminati laid the groundwork for the French Revolution by infiltrating and manipulating Masonic lodges and reading societies, which is precisely what Illuminati founder Adam Weishaupt said they should do. All right, we'll explore more after we try this beer. Beer, mystery beer number four. Number four, all right. Ah, so this has more of a oh, wow. Pilsner lager. So, okay, so this definitely has a sharper fragrance to it. Yeah. It's definitely got a sharper fragrance it's to sharper it. Sharper taste, too, but not a whole lot of difference. It's almost like the Big Brother. Hmm. Oh, wow. So this, I like. This one's better. This one's better. <laughs> I could stock this. Yeah. This, had, this that's one. all that was on the shelf. I'd stock mm-hmm. it. Yeah, this yeah. one's much more stockable. It's very crisp. Very crisp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 I almost like the yeah. fragrance of the first one more, but the, yeah. the flavor of this one is by far better. Yeah, it has a little more brew-like yeah, feel, yeah, yeah. hoppy or something. It's a little mm. cerveza to me. Yeah? I'm going with oh, Corona. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. I may have to agree with you. That's one of the choices, right? I think that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking it's either the Corona Light or the Michelob Pure Gold. Mm. Did you stick the lime in there? That would be the tell on the Corona, right? <laughs> we, did we have to do that afterwards. Oh. We have to do that afterwards. <laughs> That's after we figure out which ones they are. <laughs> if we do it beforehand. <laughs> True, that is cheating. Then to continue the odd man out, I'll go with the yingling on this. All right. All right. I actually like the way this tastes. I'm going to go yeah. with, I'm gonna go yeah, with nice. pure gold. I'm it's got 
I'm going through kind of got a relaxing mm-hmm. set. Like I can just chill with this. Yep. And you said Cerveza? Yeah, I'm going with Corona. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with Gold. I think it's Gold. Right. If you like it, it's probably not the Corona because I'm tasting <laughs> the Corona. It's not doing a whole lot for me. <laughs> All right, it should be interesting. It's it's good though. Whatever it yeah. is, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, that's good. All right. We all agree it's good. So, diving back in. Robeson and Beryl arrived separately at their conclusion. However, Robeson got much of his information from a Catholic monk and British secret agent named Alexander Horn. Yes, I didn't know that you could be a both either. <laughs> That's led some to conjecture that both books were part of a Vatican-inspired plot to discredit the French Revolution. Others see the hidden hand of the British government, then at war with revolutionary France. In 1777, right after the boundary of the Illuminati, Italian adventurer Count Alessandro Cagliostro visited Germany, where he reportedly met Weishaupt. Like Weishaupt, which I believe is how we pronounce that, he was initiated into the Masonic Rite of Strict Observance. In uh, 1785, in Paris, Cagliostro created a new Masonic rite, the Egyptian, which he touted as true Freemasonry. It later became the Rite of Memphis Misrium, which attracted radical and nonconformists across Europe. And like I always say, if you're going to be a nonconformist, be like me. <laughs> <laughs> In 1786, Cagliostro ended up jailed in the Bastille. Demonstrations organized by his Masonic supporters eventually secured his release. Cagliostro later wrote an open letter to the French people urging them to mount a peaceful revolution and to destroy the Bastille. So some believe the Duke of Orleans and Desmoulins were following Cagliostro's instructions when they targeted the old fortress in 1786. 89. Questions to consider. What is the evidence for and against Thomas Jefferson being a Freemason? Oh, wait. So that was the wrong one. Sorry. <laughs> I actually added That's that a question. Good jump. I actually added that question to the wrong one. But, oh. so, but this was... Thomas so, Jefferson out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> that escalated quickly. That one, <laughs> sorry. That one comes later. Uh, no, so the, so the weird thing is, is in the Bavarian uh, Illuminati, it went back and forth between the Masonic, uh, the Masonic rites, so it was really weird, and it was only it was really only around for one decade, and that's the really weird part. So the Illuminati, by and large, this big thing that we make out is the Bavarian Illuminati, which was a small organization which battled back and forth with that with a new Masonic rite that was formed during the French Revolution. So it's a really really kind of weird tale. Of how we pull the whole idea of the Illuminati from this, yeah. So, hmm. so <laughs> there's a different so, hey, order, right? Oh, sorry. Go. Um, what is what is the idea of the Illuminati? <laughs> <laughs> a secret organization that rules the world. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's like the New World Order, basically. There goes Zechariah's got it. <laughs> that we know JC and, and Beyonce are a part of. That's right. right. Okay. Oh, That's that right. makes sense. <laughs> but there's uh so 
the Scottish Rite and the Bavarian order, are they different? So the so the Bavarian Illuminati was not actually part of the Masonic Rite. Okay. The Masonic Rite that came against the Illuminati was that new order. If you go back and New World Order. <laughs> it was the it was the Egyptian Masonic Order. So it was the Illuminati was was a a society that was actually against the Egyptian Masonic Order. What's hmm. Masonic? Ah, we will be touching on that. Okay. <laughs> so they work with bricks. It's kind of every time I hear it, I'm here. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be we'll be touching on that. Because here's the weird thing, and I'll say this up front before we progress. Uh oh. One thing I found that was consistent among almost every secret society, almost all of them involved the Freemasons. Almost all of them. Almost every single one. Outside of the ones that are objectively against it, like certain Catholic ones. <laughs> so well, those, they kind of involve them. They just involve them as an opposition rather than internal, right? Yeah, exactly. It's there's there's still a connection. Can, there's, there's old opposition? Is that what you mean? The, so here's the cool oh well, here's the weird thing. So most of them involve the Masonic Orders. They're not. Most of them are not in opposition. This is one of the few ones where it was in opposition, but most right. most of the time you find out that the secret societies have masons inside of them. That's the it was the masons all along, right? It's and it's it's almost it's it's almost always the case. Wait, are you saying there's a bunch of Freemasons inside the Knights of Columbus? Could no. be. Knights of Columbus. I are mean, one... it, it might explain some stuff. No, <laughs> Maybe but, not kidding, though. Yeah, the, the Knights of Columbus <laughs> are one of the few that that oppose that oppose the Masonic orders. Mm. So, I don't think they check that close anymore, though. I bet a Freemason could stay, sneak in. They have, I mean, Gumby, you could probably sneak in. I could probably uh, sneak you in. I mean, I'm not going to say nothing. So Freemasons have snuck in in the past. We could actually touch on that a little bit uh, coming up later in the show. So... <laughs> Only a Freemason would control the show like that, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> what we're going to touch on at the moment is Bohemian Grove. Oh, heard of okay. these wild naked people? <laughs> yeah. You got any pictures? I did. Unfortunately, you oh, you cannot you. get pictures to this. <laughs> this transition. We can go there on an Alex Jones trip. We could. That's right. I wonder we if he's could. doing trips. Because, man, he had a big old expose. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not use his material because it was very inaccurate. He got a, he caught a lot of flack for that. He did. He did. There were presidents there, or, or old presidents, right? But you know who did do a really good expose? Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken actually did a very good expose, and I did include a link to to his presentation. Not bad, Jimmy Aiken. Yeah, I did include Jimmy Aiken's presentation in our links. So in our show links, it'll be in there. Mm. So, uh, as the sun descends behind the red woods, elaborately robed men gather at the base of a 40-foot stone owl. They place a human-shaped wicker effigy on an altar. They try to ignite it, but have trouble. A voice booms from the owl, instructing them to use the lamp of fellowship. They do as commanded, and the wicker figure is soon ablaze. Chanting and music fill the air as hundreds of other robed figures look on. In this way, 
some 2,000 members of a secret society known as the Bohemian Club kick off their annual three-week summer retreat at a private woodland playground. The ritual is called the Cremation of Care. It doesn't take much imagination to see the ceremony as a mock human sacrifice. Some critics alleging it's a thinly disguised pagan cult masquerading as an exclusive men's club. Others see a sinister manifestation of druid rites or a secret owl society linked to the 18th century Bavarian Illuminati. Dun dun dun. Moloch. Still others detect the odor of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. A Bohemian Club brother would insist the ceremony, like the club itself, is just for fun. Of course, the main reason the event attracts attention is because those who gather there aren't ordinary men. They're all rich. F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, The rich are different from you and me. For many who attain great wealth, there's a nagging question. Why me? The answer that creeps into the heads of some is they have wealth to achieve. Some, great things. If so, then what better way to realize this by joining with others who have been chosen? Bohemian club members are men, and only men, of wealth and influence. CEOs, politicians, financiers, media figures, and a smattering of entertainers. Their ranks have included Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George F. Bush, or George W. Bush. Other members include those who make decisions that shape operations, government, and even international policies. The Bohemian Club was born in 1872 in the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle. It was initially a club for newspapermen. That's where the Bohemian comes from. It was there that the term for a wandering reporter, a trade most of the founders had practiced. Artsy types like painters and writers were admitted as honorary members. That distinction soon disappeared. The club's growing reputation and exclusivity began to attract businessmen. The advantage of rich members was that they could pay for things like a tract of old-growth forest north of the city, the future Bohemian Grove. Journalists and artists never entirely disappeared from the club's roster. By the turn of the 20th century, however, they were outnumbered by CEOs and politicians. The Bohemians likely lifted their emblem, an owl, from an earlier secret society known as Sklerafi, a German order that started in the Bohemian capital of Prague in about 1859. German immigrants brought it to the United States, including San Francisco. Schlafler's totem was the owl, was the owl of Bohemia, and the group attracted artists, actors, and musicians. The Bohemian Club probably began as an, as an Americanized ripoff of Schlereffia, but there might have been something more at work, as Prague was also home to an occult secret called South Bahi or Asiatic Brethren. South Bahi incorporated the Jewish Kabbalah, alchemy, and ritual magic. And they did, and they did was shrouded in allegory and secrecy. And there was a heavier crossover membership between Seth Bahi and Sclerophia. All right, go ahead and talk. <laughs> hmm. It's weird. It is weird that they, I mean, it's there. It's, it's one of those secrets that are not really a secret, but 
right? They go up there doing weird things, and you're talking about in some cases really old men, old presidents like Reagan, yeah, Henry Kissinger, those people. Obviously, you know, people who move the world in a sense, right? They did take. Some, I don't know. Whatever they, they do for the kicks and giggles, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. They did take some criticism because they didn't allow any females at the campground because this is a, a sizable campground. It's it's fairly large, um, and they do stay there for for three weeks and they do party very very hard. Yeah. So for three weeks, yeah. um, and when you go on site, there are a few rules, and one of those rules is work does not go with you. In fact, the reporters who have been on site have noticed that if you come with a laptop or a briefcase, it will be taken from you and thrown in the river. <laughs> so mm. you are told expressly not to bring work with, with with you when you go to Bohemia Grove. It will be taken from you and disposed of. Yeah. So now they so, – go ahead. Uh, like I'm just trying – I mean I guess they didn't have laptops back then, but like how does Richard Nixon or George W. Bush – not do work for three weeks at any point in in the time that they're relevant. I'll be honest with you. They didn't do much work in the office. (laughs) (laughs) Think think about presidents and how much they actually interact with the country on a day-to-day basis. How how much time they spend on golf courses. (laughs) I think there's your answer. (laughs) well, so that's t- a conspiracy theory right there that like <laughs> W is just like AWOL for three weeks and somebody's saying like, well, the president says. <laughs> <laughs> well, believe it or not. So and, and in their defense, they don't usually go when they're a sitting president. They usually go either right. before or after. Yeah. So I would believe after. I mean, of course, didn't they say like Richard Nixon like had a speech there that kind of launched his presidential campaign? It's a rumor. <laughs> I guess so. He was out of power for quite a while, so maybe in his case it makes sense. I mean, nobody cares where Richard Nixon is in like you know 1966 or whatever. Yeah. Now, because it is a publicly funded um, campground, they did have to start hiring females. <laughs> However, and minorities. Come on, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, and minorities. <laughs> um, but they are never allowed there after dark. So the females must leave before the end of dark. Your tax dollars at work. <laughs> so the shenanigans can happen. I mean, this uh, again from the videos that Alex Jones uh, recorded and posted or whatever. It's weird stuff. It's just really weird tribalistic type stuff. Yeah. I don't know if they're doing anything necessarily illegal or wrong yeah. per se. I mean, I don't know what they consider right or wrong, but. It is weird that grown men do stuff like that. Yeah, and and to be honest, um, well, let me touch one, one or two more things. We'll come back to that. Well, because don't they don't they like simulate sacrificing to the owl? Yes, that's the effigy. Yeah, I mean that's that's a weird thing for grown men to do. Yeah, it is. But I wonder if that's well, the power of it. So one of the things, <sighs> yeah, one of the things is that du- so during these three weeks, uh, men actually will reenact plays and, and each one of them become actors in these plays. That's so cute. Uh, isn't it though? <laughs> and so, so during the acting in these plays, um, they'll take on the different roles 
and you do become heavily intoxicated because it helps your performance. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and so and public urination is uh, one of those things that is known to happen, which is why the ladies have to leave before dark. So otherwise, <laughs> otherwise something like Trump happens again, right? Uh, right. <laughs> My heart is just so warm by thinking of George W. Bush reciting Hamlet while publicly urinating. It's just, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, right? So, so these are different things that take place. Uh, and so part of these, the effigies and these rituals are acted out in plays and the, and the plays do change and they're written beforehand and the people are supposed to learn their parts before they go so that that way, once they get there, they can perform these plays for each other because different, you know, attendants will have different parts in the plays. Okay. So throughout the week. Why? Weeks. So the, are the play, are the plays more liturgical or are they just like, okay, just random, so random play. The plays are actually written by the attendants. Hmm. Yeah. So, like Newt Gingrich could have written a play that George W. Bush acted in while publicly urinating. Yes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> but again, why? Where do you sign up? <laughs> and why do the men look at this and say, "Yeah, so, okay, I'm going to do this." We're why? gonna we're gonna come back to that question. So, uh, who hail Bohemian Grove? Quote as the greatest men's party on earth. Unquote. But the club was never just, or mostly, a real sausage fest. <laughs> <laughs> or mostly, <laughs> or mostly politicians. Members also include the likes of publisher Henry Luce and financier David Rockefeller. Mm. Another guest was Richard Nixon. He was in, he was invited to give a Grove Lakeside talk in 1967. The experience Nixon wrote was the first milestone on my road to the presidency unquote he was being evaluated and he knew it that's the kind of influence some find suspect and even dangerous the bohemian uh, <clears throat> the bohemian club's influence like its paganism is probably exaggerated but that doesn't mean it has none secret societies bring like-minded people together in an atmosphere of trust Intended or not, that can become a petri dish for all kinds of intrigue, such as insider trading and revolutions. It becomes even more volatile when money and power are added into the mix. It's not unusual for Bohemian brothers to belong to other secret societies, nor is it unusual for those societies to interact with Bohemian Club. Mm. That's too many passwords to keep up with. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Walt Disney stayed at the Bohemian Grove as a guest no. in 1936. And that visit heavily influenced the look of his animated film Snow White in 1937, especially the snoring scene. Are you saying there's symbolism in Disney movies, Aaron? <laughs> Don't you ever call me a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> So, Did it influence all the what all the racist ones we are not allowed to watch anymore in the forties? <laughs> so, so one of those things. So we're going to come back to that. One of those things that uh, was heavily influenced <laughs> was the fact and exposed was the fact that a lot of these people 
did belong to fraternal organizations back when they were in colleges. Mm -hmm. More than likely, what you're seeing is a lot of frat boys who have had a lot of pressure in a lot of businesses, which is why the main rule when you show up is don't bring your work. So you don't have any work time. You're intoxicated for the entire time you're there. You're not getting much of anything done. So even though, yes, it can influence the outcome of presidencies and potentially conspiracies, <laughs> predominantly what you're looking at is probably less malicious and more a bunch of drunken frat boys. Hmm. Interesting. I mean... Yeah. Again, I think it speaks to the power of, of peer pressure, no matter yeah, how sure. big and powerful you are. You get a, in an in a area with a bunch of your peers, and they just start acting out plays and peeing everywhere, and you're like, I, I got to do that, too. I got to fit in. It's like, it doesn't matter if I'm a president. It's like well, the, I mean – Oh, go ahead, Zach. The, the, way I'm, the way I see it is if you're involved in something like this, there's definitely the romance involved along with all the aesthetic, right, where you're, you feel you're involved in something bigger, something grander, something more uh, unitive. And so it would be unsurprising then that some, uh, whether political or otherwise, uh, things change hands or go along with that because you're caught up in the whole mystique of the thing. And you want, you want to feel like this is a real thing and that it's important and therefore, you kind of make it that way uh, by involving that sort of thing. Yeah. A couple of things. I find it interesting that, you know, like you said, the peer pressure thing, I think it is a big part of it. For me, I think it's a it's a breeding ground for entitlement for kids who haven't grown up. A Petri dish. Who happen to be rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing is that, well, and you made reference to it too, I don't know how it can affect things like business decisions or politics and all of this kind of thing. I think it's interesting that if these men are willing to subject themselves to be humiliated in front of their peer pressure groups, then being a president is being, it's like nothing. Yeah. You're, you will be more apt, I think, or could be more apt. I'm trying to watch my words here to be controlled by whoever's around you. It's easy to do that. I could just see the next step doing that so you know for for nixon i mean i'm sure he humiliated himself there oh i'm sure and you know i i I just have the image burned in my head of like the kingmakers of the republican party being there and richard nixon is taking a leak and they're just looking at you know man that guy he can be a president we can tell right now (laughs) just a one-term president though (laughs) i'm gonna come at it from the other side and i'm gonna say christian retreats have stuff in common here where you omg exact hot take so you basically are super vulnerable in these moments Mm. of admitting your sin and admitting you fall short you're amongst your brethren, typically, or, you know, if it's a female retreat, male retreat, we typically separate the genders. And you walk away with this camaraderie and this closeness yeah, because man. people have seen a side, a vulnerable side of you that no one's seen. Now, imagine money and power and all these people <laughs> dropping a little bit of their ego. 
how close you can be afterwards, sure. how much more likely you're able to swing a business deal with these people. Right. You know, no, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, because even like on, on a smaller church community, like-minded level, mm-hmm. I've experienced that, you know, okay, yeah, you're ready for this position now. Yeah. We've seen you go through this. Yeah. So, yeah. but you're just talking about levels up now, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I, I, I think the logic can apply for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, at this point... That's- that's definitely definitely a sweet hot take that right there. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, we're going to take a break and hear an announcement from our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us, you don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country. Either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com And we're back! Alright, Mike's gonna roll that die. Or just pick one. Yeah, we'll just do number one. Alright, let's do number one. While he does that, I'm gonna let you know we are gonna be diving in through the first page. We're going into... The Bilderberg Group. Now call the Bilderberg meetings because it sounds more savvy. (laughs) More politically correct. That's right. The Bilderberg Group first appeared in 1954. Their name comes from the site of their initial meeting at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeek, Netherlands. The real name of this group, if it has one, is a secret. The meetings have continued every spring. What do the Bilderbergers do? About all they'll say is that they're an informal advisory body to the Atlantic Alliance. Some say Bilderberg is a manifestation of synarchy, a shadowy movement that aims to govern the world through a technocratic elite. Researcher Daniel Istelin speculates that they're an extrapolation of an older society, the Coefficients Club. Hmm. Maybe the most interesting thing about the Bilderberg Group are two of its founders, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands and Joseph Rettinger. Not to be confused with Ratzinger. (laughs) Uh, Both were men of vague nationality and questionable ethics. The (laughs) prince was a German aristocrat who at one point became a Nazi party and SS member. In 1937, Bernhard married Princess Juliana of the Netherlands and more or less transformed into a Dutchman. Prince Bernhard was the formal head of Bilderberg until 1976, stepping down after being caught red-handed in a bribery scandal. All right, let's dive into this beer. Is it, does it say what the bribery scandal was or no? No. Yeah. Hmm. That's good stuff. The it this one I think foamed more than the other, but the foam yeah. dissipated pretty quick. That yeah. was really quick. It's not heady at all. In fact, it got a very very vague fragrance to it. I'm going with the other Michelob. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's very light. Very light. It's very bad. very. It's almost light. like a wine. Yeah. It's like uh. Yeah. yeah. Extra chlorinated tap water. <laughs> Half the fluoride. See, I Ouch. wasn't interested before. <laughs> that might be the Corona then. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's okay. Um, 
I drank it. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. It doesn't have a lot of flavor though. No, it's real watery. I'm yeah, gonna go it's, with the, it's very watery. I'm gonna go with the organic on this one. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's what's the organic one? Yeah, uh, Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. Yeah, okay. yeah. That, is that the one that I just said, or you said the other, uh, which I don't remember which one you did first. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, I think I'm gonna agree with you on that one. I definitely think this is organic. Okay. What number was this one? One. One. Okay. So I, I one. So I yeah. I think it is. I think you're, I think you're right. Who else does? Mike does. Yeah. If I didn't vote for it already, yeah. Mike thinks this is one. Lost count after all this drinking. <laughs> well, Gumby, do you already get? Oh no. Yep. You guessed this one was two. You guessed this one was two. Okay, that's fine. You can right. that. <laughs> so what did you? If you're gonna play that card. You get a second guess. Like, <laughs> you have to, don't you have to pick another one? What do you so, think it is? Daniel Estelin uh-huh. is actually a legit uh, researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so if it's not that one, what do you think it is? Oh, uh, I don't know. What, what choices we, do we have? Left? We also have Coronalite, Yinling Flight, and uh, Mick Ultra. Yeah. Which one has any? Well, so you, you have two left, so you can't even do process of elimination. Which yeah. two does he have left? He has Yinling Flight and Mick Ultra. Not. It does make ultra. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't taste like the yingling to me. Anything yingling. No. I'm really scared. So the the other founder, let's see. Oh, where'd it go? There. Rettinger, a Pole with a German name, was uh, was general secretary and, some believe, the real head of the outfit. He had a shadowy career as a political activist, conspirator, and probable spy going back to World War I. He was at one point or another expelled from France, Mexico, and the United States. But he also became an advisor to presidents, prime ministers, and corporate chiefs. He always preferred to work behind the scenes. Bilderberg's members and invitees are a select mix of politicians, bureaucrats, bankers, and industrialists with a flavor of lawyers and academics. A roster of the original 1954 gathering indicates some 60 attendees, mostly Western Europeans, but including 12 Americans. And most of these were technically guests, not necessarily members. In more recent years, attendee, attendance has grown to 100 or even 150. All who attend are magically stripped of their office once they enter the meeting. They're sworn to hold in strict confidence everything discussed there. And that's true. Yeah. They are allowed to quote something said in the meeting. Yep. They are never allowed to say who said it. Mm. Yeah, because even the list of attendees is, is public, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. It, the uh, list is always public. <laughs> Um, although some people deny that they were there, of course, like, like certain, uh, presidential nominees who have mm-hmm. been seen there, but then, uh, declined yeah. to admit they were, <laughs> it's so public that there's armed guards yes. protecting them. Wow. Oh, at, at one point there was a, uh, there was actually, uh, a journalist, who traveled to the hotel. This is during one of the earlier meetings, I believe mm-hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s. He traveled to the meetings to try to figure out who was there and go on site. And he got in. He walked right in to the hotel that they were at. And it was rural. It's always rural. Um, 
What happened, though, was the next day when he showed up, they followed him for almost the entire day. He even called his embassy <laughs> to, try to, to, to try to get help. And when he, when he told the embassy that he thought it was the Bilderberg group following them, they said, oh, yeah, they do that sometimes. And went on to explain that they're best off ignoring them and going about their way. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, can um, you tell me how to get them off my back? Yeah, right. so they knew. You're going to have to kill a chicken. Yeah, they, <laughs> they knew about them. The embassy actually knew about them. That was the interest. That's what, very interesting that they actually knew about them. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess I kind of view them as the shakers and movers of society and all, you know. Y- Oh, the, the list is huge. Yeah. Like, uh, both heads, both founders of Google have yeah. been there. Uh, Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chair, right? Like, all these major people yep. with Kissinger. Yeah. All, I mean... Hillary Clinton's been yeah, seen Clinton's. there. I can't believe uh, they let Jared Kushner in. Yeah, I mean, have some standards, so, guys. <laughs> so, it turns out that... Uh, yeah, Needed Trump, diversity. Trump did make sure that two of his people were on site and did attend the meeting as well. <laughs> um, although it's never been known that he has ever appeared. He's never appeared on an attendance list himself. And presidents who are in office are not allowed to attend. Only if they are have been previous presidents or if they may someday be a president. But uh, they are not allowed to attend while they are a president, a sitting president. Um, but former presidents and, uh, presidential nominees have been seen at the meetings as well as their, as their own personal, like you said, <laughs> personnel. <laughs> yeah. Cause Kushner was one of the attendees. Yep. I'm sure there are a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Rings within rings is, is Edward Griffin. He's mm-hmm. a, a really good author. I like to read about conspiracy and secret societies. He wrote a book. Can't remember the name of the book, but the, one of his books is called "The Creature from Jekyll Island," huh. and he talks a lot about these different groups and the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and everything is rings within rings. I mean, you think you're in, you think you're in, yeah. but then you don't realize that there's probably like five or six more levels of different <laughs> rings yeah. that you're not a part of. Yeah. You know, and again, if you take it all the way down to like what you were talking about on the smallest scale within our communities mm-hmm. that really exists too. Yeah. There's things that we're not privy to in our small little church. Right. So why right. wouldn't that logic apply? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There? Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, what's really interesting when it comes to, to secrecy and such is that the trilateral commission, I didn't include in this because they've become so public and they even have their own website. Now they've become so public it's almost not worth mentioning them right now. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like they now, they now list their meetings, who is attending, where to find them. It's, it's like they've become so public that it wasn't even worth my time to bring them into this. Whereas the Bilderbergs, you might know where they attend and who attends, mm-hmm. but it's still surrounded in legit secrecy. Yeah, you don't know the agenda. Nope. Yeah. So... And they'll put a general so guideline. I'm sure it includes world in, uh, world domination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they'll include like their general topics, but there's topics that they've seen from quotes that came out that show that that, that they don't stay on top. At least they have <laughs> women come. They do. They do. They do. I think it was uh, originally back in the back when that first started. It was 12 percent women. 
but it's almost like anywhere from 20 to 40 percent women now so yeah yeah so i found the coolest attendee who's that uh chris hadfield he's a canadian astronaut uh he's the guy uh you might have seen the video of a guitarist on the iss playing space oddity mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's cool <laughs> He also, to tie it back to uh, our uh, the the Bohemian Grove, um, he he wrote a really good book I read, and he devotes an entire chapter about to going to the bathroom in space. So, all right, just in case. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> entire chapter, jeez, covers number one and two. <laughs> That's exactly right. Would be interesting to note: have any heads or higher up people in any religious institution, Catholic or protestant have they ever attended you know i have not seen any in attendance um that's a good question especially concerning um catholicism because catholicism firmly believes that there should be no secrets um except for except for uh letters to popes for the first 70 years now they that does because those letters are often from uh, current leaders so like from presidents and kings and so that's the reason why they seal the documents from presidents for 70 years is to keep people and potential leadership um, from getting in trouble after 70 years they release the letters of those of those popes hmm. now there have been some exceptions okay so there have been some like recently they uh, went ahead and released some from uh, Pope Pius the uh, the 12th um, because they wanted to find out what was happening during World War II, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk about whether or not he was beneficial during World War II to say that say the Jewish people, uh, what happened, what took place. So there was a lot surrounding that, and so they went ahead and they're now releasing documents, even though it's early because it shouldn't be released until I think 2030. Um, but they're releasing them now to. To, cl- to clear his name so or not because one thing that Pope Francis has said uh, love this Pope is that there should always be transparency and there should be no secrecy and you should know what the Catholic Church stands for and, and we should stand by what, what what we did whether it was right or wrong so <laughs> so again I love this Pope I did um, find a Catholic connection in here to the Bilderbergs yes uh, one of the one of the earliest promoters of the conspiracy about the Bilderbergs being like the center of like the one world government uh, negotiations was uh, Phyllis Shafley, a uh, Catholic who's well known for uh, being the vocal opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment oh. uh, in the 70s. And I would kind of consider her like the godmother of the Catholic MAGA movement. Okay. Okay. <laughs> very good. <laughs> That's very conflicting. It's very good. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I'm not. I'm not saying anything good about her here. <laughs> I will say though that the uh, when it comes to the Bilderberg Group, they are definitely a force to be reckoned with because oftentimes when you have these different nominees for office coming up, they they will become president <laughs> or CEOs or world leaders. So. Yeah. There's a lot of heavy ties to the Bilderberg Group, or now called Bilderberg Meetings, and uh, it often makes you wonder what's actually happening behind the scenes. Yeah. So. Oh come on! I mean, 
Benjamin Bernanke, Kissinger, yeah. Rothschilds. I mean, these are like <laughs> these people represent a lot of wealth. Like oh, that, Lindsey the, Graham, <laughs> the Bilderberg Group. Oh no! I wonder what you know. How much of the wealth the world is represented there? Yeah, cool. Quite a bit, especially yeah. in Western culture. Yeah. I just keep hunting through the list looking for the doofiest people that were invited. I mean, Jared Kushner is is one and one A. If you say David Hasselhoff, that's it. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Look at his face. <laughs> oh, no, he's not in there. That would have been something. All right. All right, last beer. All right. Last beer, because then we're going to hit something, something heavy. Ooh. Okay, this one's foaming up. It's foaming up. Ooh, it's got a nice golden color. Ooh. I like that golden color. It's all right, we're going in there. It looks, it, it looks like liquid gold. That has a nice golden hue to it. And believe it or not, it's, the head is still there. So it hasn't dissipated yet. It's slowly going down. I like that. That means that it's something usually good. Hmm. All right, it's got a nice fragrance on the top. It's not overbearing. It's it's slight. It's it's very very minimal. It is more golden than all the other ones, I believe. Yeah, yeah, like the color. Very subtle scent. Ooh. Okay. It's it's not as um, it's not as robust as not as beer number two. Yeah, which is probably my favorite tonight. Whatever that yeah. one was. But it's enjoyable. It has a weird, like, shandy, like, flavorless shandy feel to it. I don't know yeah, how it does that. that. Yeah. It's not sweet, but there's, like, a sweet overtone to it. Going with Yingling. You might have it on that one. Wow. Yeah. I, mm. All I have left is uh, just a regular Michelob Ultra, so I'll have to stick with that. <laughs> right. Well... Let me see. Actually, you had that one for one. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh, so I'm left with... Uh, You've got... Uh, I did Corona. I did Yinling. And I thought the last one was... Oh, gold. The last one was gold. Oh, you're right. Hold on. What do you have then? Hold on. Oh, man. Oh, you know, I, no, you know what? That was Gumby. Never mind. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You can, you, you can take that one. Okay. <laughs> All right. That <laughs> was Gumby. <laughs> I can hear you. <laughs> But I like it though. It's got it's got a nice flavor. I like it. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if I like it or not. I would probably say no. Really? Yeah. It's... Really? No. I I like this one. It, it's got a nice pilsner taste to it. It does have a pilsner taste. It's just everything's sort of muted. Everything like you get a yeah. little hint of everything. Yeah. But everything's muted. Yeah. It it, it is muted. But again, this is one of those. Summer, I'm mowing the lawn. Yes, yeah. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't spit it out. I just wouldn't stock it. Yeah. All right, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. I zoned out there for a moment, and I just heard it's kind of muted, and I freaked out. I'm like, "What's wrong with the sound? Uh, <laughs> Gumby, get over here!" Yeah. All I have, is, all I've get left is uh, Corona Light, so I'm going to go with Corona Light. So, there we go. All right, the votes are in. Votes are in. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Votes are in. So we'll find out after we talk about Freemasons. Freemasons. <laughs> Wait, are we done with the Bilderbergs? Yeah, uh, for now, unless you want to say something oh, else. I, I thought all we've been telling is talking about Freemasons. Wait, you're going to talk more about them? 
Well, see, we've been hinting around them because they're involved in like everything. Uh, that's the the weird thing. So in my in my uh, studies, I found out that pretty much they're involved in all the secret societies. <laughs> Common thread. So the real NWO yeah. here. Mm. Yeah, they are. I knew it. They they are the uh, the center lace that goes through this shoe. Um, the Freemasons have are involved in virtually every single secret society that I studied for this. So. Let me uh, touch on this. Freemasonry is not one thing, but many. And it always has been this way. Much of this vagueness and variety stems from the fact that Freemasonry's origins are lost in time. As ever, people see what they want to see and believe what they want to believe. Conveniently. Which I, I'm pretty sure is a, a song. <laughs> Therefore, unsurprisingly, Freemasonry grew into a worldwide presence and it inspired and influenced other societies. Over time, there have been about 20 Masonic rites. The best known are the Scottish and the York rite. Others include the Egyptian rite of Memphis Mizraim, which we mentioned earlier. There are also, or were, French, Mexican, and Swedenborgian rites. Among the things they have in common is that they are openly only to master, that is, third-degree Masons. But the rights aren't under the authority of any Grand Lodge. Thus, the higher rights can pretty much do and believe whatever they want. The number of additional degrees offered by the rights varies widely. One of the earliest known Masonic documents is the Cook Manuscript from 1450. It also mentions Euclid, but brings in King Solomon and pushes things all the way back to Adam. <laughs> the Dowland Manuscript from the mid-1500s elaborates the connection to Solomon's Temple and its legendary master, Hiram Abiff, whose death at the hands of three unworthy apprentices became a centerpiece in Masonic mythology. In 1776, bum Freemasons were a tiny minority in the American colonial population, and they were not even evenly distributed. Despite lots of talk about brotherhood and equality, American Freemasonry wasn't egalitarian. Membership was pricey, and deliberately so. Lodges attracted the upwardly mobile and well-to-do. Masons were far more likely to be literate and well-educated than small farmers and working men. Thus... Lodges were filled with men who already occupied positions of influence and already saw themselves as hereditary or natural leaders. But while they were an elite, they weren't a unified elite. Freemasonry first took off in the colonies in the, in the 1730s. This coincided with a bitter schism in the Grand Lodge of England that pitted the more free-thinking and more political faction known as the Moderns against the more traditional and religious ancients. But all American Masons, whatever their camp, swore allegiance to King George. Thus, Patriot Masons violated their oath when they turned rebel. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, nine were indisputably Masons. Among the 39 signers of the Constitution, 13 were confirmed Masons. Among the 33 generals of Washington's Continental Army, 74 were confirmed Masons, including the future president. 
so none of these groups were exclusively or even mostly Freemasons. But the brothers were disproportionately represented among the revolution's founders and leading officers. Still, does that translate to Masonic control? Right here, I will break mm. from my text, and I will tell you, according to tradition, and according to Masonic tradition, America was called the Masonic Experiment. Why? Yeah. Because... <laughs> Theory, uh, theoretically, it was founded by Masons. Oh. <laughs> Which takes us into our next bit of uh, trivia here. Between 1934 and 1935, American Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace, a Freemason, convinced President Franklin Roosevelt, also a Mason, <laughs> to put the seal of the United States on the dollar bill. To Wallace, the all-seeing eye on its reverse side symbolized the Masonic great architecture of the universe. The great seal is also commonly believed to have been designed or at least inspired by Benjamin Franklin, definitely a Mason, and Thomas Jefferson, also a Mason. However, none of their proposals ended up in the final version of the seal. Instead, its creation took a half a dozen years and three committees and consultants did most of the design work. One of the most influential was Francis Hopkinson, another Freemason, who had to put an unfinished pyramid on a $50 bill issued in 1777, or 8, And it's a dead ringer for the one on the seal today. <laughs> That's right. It gets better. <laughs> Alleged Masonic influence also crops up in the layout of the new capital, Washington, D.C., one Masonic publication hailed it as the world's foremost Masonic city. The man tasked with the job, Pierre Lafont, was indeed a Mason. He laid out D.C. streets in a diamond patterns that formed triangles and pentagrams, and the Capitol building squats like an all-seeing eye at the top of a pyramid formed by Maryland and Pennsylvania avenues. A more blatant example of Masonic influence was the laying of the cornerstone in 1793. George Washington officiated, decked out in full Masonic regalia, surrounded by fellow Masons. <laughs> Masonic influence didn't end with the Revolution. At least 14 presidents, 37 Supreme Court justices, and countless senators, congressmen, diplomats, bureaucrats, and soldiers would be Lodge brothers. Rudolf von Sabotendorf, the man who would truly set the stage for Hitler, has been described as a spectacular version of the shady and mysterious adventurer who attached himself vehemently to an extreme nationalist cause. Sabotendorf's sponsor was a Jewish Freemason and occultist named Termaldi. Their lodge was one of the incubators of the Young Turks, who seized control of the teetering Ottoman Empire in 1908. Do you guys want a break for, for, for talking here at this point? <laughs> Join us in part two for the rest of the conversation. 